0: Welcome to Systematically, your weekly theology podcast. I'm John Heaps. I'm speaking to you from, well, today kind of drizzly, rainy Austin, Texas. I'm here with Robin Buret. Hi, Robin. Bonjour. <laughs> and Ryan Hemmer. Hey, Ryan. Hello. Uh, we are sans Brian Bacek. He has, uh, well, a real job. And so he has responsibilities he must attend to this fine Saturday morning. So we're without him, which is a bummer. Because we're talking about uh, embodiment and cognition, Uh, we're going to go through an article that I wrote and was published in Haythrop Journal in 2015 called Insight is a Body Feeling. Um, But we'll get to that soon enough. First, uh, Robin had some frivolity that she wanted to bring to the table. Robin, what were you thinking about?
1: Well, um, as you guys may or may not know, I commute in Toronto, which is like... um, either the sixth or the seventh circle of hell. I'm not really sure which, except I just don't feel like they're as delayed, you know, um, as, as the TTC. So I have a lot of time to think. And this week I've been thinking about like, what sport would be the best if you added alcohol to the rules. And I mean for the people playing the sport. Because otherwise, the, like, the answer is baseball. Because how else do you sit through a baseball game?
0: Like, we are going to get tweets.
1: Um. Those things are, like, four hours long.
0: S- says someone who's from a country where they play cricket.
1: Yeah, but, like, then you get proper meal breaks, right? So, like, you have dinner, <laughs> so and you have, you have breakfast. soak
0: some of the booze up, I suppose.
1: Dinner and, um, okay, I guess a test match is mostly about drinking for the spectators as well. But then cricket's kind of like the rest of the world's baseball. Uh,
0: true.
2: Um,
1: no, but I'm thinking specifically, like, if you're adding it into the rules of the game, Mm. Like a certain amount of drinking, and it's kind of but so, and you want it like I'm trying to think of a sport where it would be like it would add to the experience of say watching it or like maybe even playing it, but wouldn't just like immediately destroy the game. Like you know you can't like Formula One racing with alcohol would just be kind of no like good. a fiery death trap.
2: Yeah, um, and it already is that for the most part. True, uh, maybe,
1: I maybe they uh, are drinking.
2: Oh no! Oh
0: no! Um, I, I know curling is a really hacky uh, comedy sport premise.
1: Um, whoa, you're gonna get tweets by Canadians. Curling <laughs> is like our national sport. Don't not curling. I, I'm
2: just there's saying, a, there's a curling rank about ten miles up the road from my house. We've already established that Minnesota <laughs> is basically Canada.
0: Um, but but look, American comedians like to make fun of curling, and it's uh, it's at least down here, it's tired. That being said, I do think that. Uh, progressive lapse of sobriety uh, on ice with brooms and slow-moving stones uh, it would just be a ballet of comedy. I think that would be a good time. I just think there's well, no way you uh, can I mean, do that sidestep sweeping thing after three or four beers. There's just no That's way. true.
1: You'd be, you'd be surprised if you ever been to a small-town uh, curling match.
0: Robin, no. No, I have not.
1: Oh, well, John, <laughs> why, don't, why don't you come up to Canada and take you to southern Saskatchewan? And-
2: All right. So here's the thing, though. If, if you're going to kind of maintain the purity of the sport, you, would, it, you couldn't do it with beer. You'd have to do it with, with like Shots. single malt scotch to, to keep the connection to Scotland. Yeah, um, mm,
1: that's true.
0: That so would it actually, would, that it would like have a, a nice that sounds like a, a nice classiness
2: to it uh, you yeah. know it wouldn't, it wouldn't just be about uh drinking cheap beer and mucking about
1: right hmm. And maybe it's like for every like rock you have in the house above the other team, so if like you score three points, that other team has to then drink
0: Oh three yeah, there we go. Scotches. yeah, that's a a weird way to consume scotch, but i I think for the sake of uh stumbly curling I think. Uh, <laughs> Should, we should at least try. Uh-huh. Should do the work in our own lab.
1: I, I mean, I think so. I mean, there, there is a curling rink really close to uh, Ryan's house. So,
0: yeah, let's do it, guys. Road trip.
1: Um, I was thinking, like, the thing is that any sport that involves, like, a ton of hand-eye coordination kind of will just become sloppy before it's fun, right? Because mm. that's, like, the first thing that goes.
0: Tennis, like, wouldn't work all logie and uh, it wouldn't
1: yeah although it might get it might get real funny
2: really yeah, quickly
1: um but i was thinking like why not have like a drinking version of slalom skiing called the sloppy slalom where i, in I which, do like, like the
0: slur in there that's fun yeah
1: oh shank uh where like every like five gates that you miss or whatever is a shot
0: I like that there's a sort of death spiral element to that. There's
1: like a, Yeah, there is a little bit. I mean, you'd need, you'd have to divide kind of like a, like design like a special slalom course. So instead of having like just the snow gates, you actually have just mounds of really fluffy snow for people to crash into.
0: Yeah, it's, it would be skiing with bumpers.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then, um,
0: I don't
2: you know, know if know. you guys have ever skied into a big pile of snow, but it's not <laughs> as soft as you might think. True. Yeah. That
1: is, that is true, and I've done that. Although, in this case, there wouldn't be a secret tree oh,
0: yeah.
1: in <laughs> that snow fight. pile.
2: Um,
1: but it would be kind of an endurance test, too, because it's like how good you are in the first time, but also how well do you do as you consume more and more alcohol. Yeah.
2: Yeah, no, That so I just you'd, you'd have to you'd have to have a weighted point scale then.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah, wow. I think so. Yeah. Okay.
2: I suppose that would just be axiomatic for almost any sport we're talking about here. the Could more be. you drink, the more points you stand to earn. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it so has the
2: stakes to be go right? up as the, as the game progresses, yeah. as the yeah. the match progresses. Hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, you're never going to get these leagues insured. Is the big problem. Well, that's, true. that's true. Yeah, the the uh, the tables just uh, wouldn't check out. Maybe no. you could
1: get enough sponsorship from like Anheuser Busch or something that you know they'll also pay the like.
2: Oh yeah, they'll cover it. Yeah, to me. they'll just right. they'll just create a uh, an insurance company. Right. I think I've come up with one that has the promise comedy without the uh, correlated promise of fiery death okay beach volleyball oh yeah drunk people running around trying to find their their footing in the sand trying to jump uh trying to uh maintain enough hand-eye coordination to hit a ball that's coming at them
1: uh, yeah but it's like a it's like a big ball so they'll keep it together long enough that it'll be funny not like baseball or something like the ball's yeah. too it's too fast and too small or is this like I feel like there'd be a lot of like large volleyballs in people's faces, and like just swinging limbs.
0: Yep. Yeah. No, I think that's that's a good call. I really like that. I, I mean, though, yet. though you'd need IV drips after the game. You just have a lot of really dehydrated
2: people. That's true. Uh,
0: yeah. But we could do
2: that. Oh, we got that covered. All right.
1: I like it. All right. There well, we go. Problem solved. I think
2: we just revolutionized sports,
0: guys. Yeah. It's going to be a whole new Olympics next year. Um. <laughs>
1: That or we've just described every sport that, like, um, rec league college kids play. <laughs> yeah, we've yeah. we've
2: identified the difference between amateur and professional athletics. That's right. Yeah, <laughs>
0: intramural and otherwise.
2: Uh,
0: okay. Well, those all sound dangerous. Great.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. Uh, so uh, I asked Ryan to give a kind of lead-in because the so. As usual, we're going to wander off in the philosophy weeds because we can't seem to avoid it. But, but uh, this week especially, the, the framing for this topic is Trinitarian um, and specifically Thomas's psychological analogy. Um, so before I won't go on to say more, Ryan, can you tell us a little bit about sort of how this question of understanding fits into Thomas's account of the psychological analogy?
2: Yeah, Sure. Uh, so everyone needs to buckle up because, uh, you know, things are going to get technical, um, but you don't listen to a podcast that uh, called systematically if you're adverse to or averse to technical things. If you want so, a sh-
1: If you want a sloppy flow show.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. So
1: um, I should stop drinking in podcasting, guys,
2: especially on a Saturday morning. <laughs> Eh, where does she have to be? <laughs> <laughs> so in um, in Insight, um, if you read Insight, um, you might be a bit confused why seemingly out of nowhere, um, this Canadian seminary professor um, has l- launched into this 800-page analysis of the act of understanding, um, and you could be forgiven for asking that question. Um, but the truth of the matter is that uh, on the way to insight, uh, Lonergan had a uh, a rather prolonged engagement with Saint Thomas Aquinas, both his doctoral dissertation and then a series of articles he wrote. Um, that were gathered together and published as Verbum. And Verbum very much is the, uh, the Aristotelian and Thomistic context for all the stuff that he's going to talk about in Insight as Cognitional Theory. Um, but one of the odd things you discover when you go to Verbum is that in Thomas, this whole question about understanding, about concepts, they have their originating context in Thomas's Trinitarian theology. And so for the purposes of trying to give a kind of theological grounding to what will, as John said, no doubt prove a very philosophical conversation, um, I I think it's worth saying a word or two about Thomas's psychological analogy. Um, now, when we're we're talking about Thomas's analogy, we're not talking about Augustine's, although they're they're related. Um, and when we're talking about Thomas's psychological analogy, we're also not talking about what almost every textbook you might read says Aquinas's psychological analogy is. Um, this is this is something that is so uh, widely and systemically misidentified and thereby misunderstood that it uh, beggars belief. But what the psychological analogy is in Aquinas is not an analogy for how three can also be one. And it's not a analogy for reconciling seemingly incongruous math. What the psychological analogy is, is an analogy for trying to figure out or trying to understand, however dimly, how in a perfectly simple God that is not made up of parts, that doesn't have potency, that is pure act, how in such a God there can be procession. Now, Aquinas uh, has read the Bible a few times and so knows that uh, the the Gospel of John, in particular, has Jesus claiming to, to have come from the Father. Um, and so uh, we see this language also reflected in the Nicene Creed, uh, that, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Um, <laughs> So, so there's a a um, binding doctrinal assertion that in God there is procession, but in the prima pars of the of the Summa, Aquinas spends twenty six article or twenty six questions um, establishing the simplicity of God and all of the attributes that hinge upon divine simplicity, and and all of those attributes seem to militate against the idea that in God there can be Procession, because procession seems to involve movement. Um, It seems to suggest um, a kind of interior exterior transition from a cause to an effect. And so it seems uh, that there can't be procession in God. But if the Christian religion claims, as a matter of doctrinal and revealed truth, that there is procession in God, then Aquinas has to search for some means. For understanding how both these seemingly contradictory things can be true. And so he he seizes upon the idea that you can talk about procession not only in terms of a movement from the interior to the exterior, so not only in terms of motion, but also in terms of interior intellectual movements, um, processions that proceed from an agent but remain in an agent and so a kind of act that doesn't move from potency but moves from a prior act and so Aquinas is claiming this is the kind of procession that there is in God not a procession from interior to exterior not a a procession from cause to effect interior outs to the outside but a a cause that's remaining in the agent, an act-from-act procession, And so he asks, is there anything like that that we know anything about, that we have any kind of natural, proportionate human knowledge of? And his answer is yes. And he looks to the movement of the intellect itself, And so he he identifies in the process of understanding that in the act of understanding, when you when you ask a question, and then in a moment and in a flash, you have an act by which you've come to some understanding, you've achieved some kind of answer. There's been an act, but by virtue of that act, you also engage in a consequent act, in which you. Give a name. You conceptualize. You uh, give a definition. You express the content of what you've understood, and he calls that uh, expression or that concept or that that thing that proceeds the inner word, uh, the verbum right? And he says this is this is the expression that you mean when you use language. Um, And this expression itself means the content of what you've understood. And so uh, the procession of the inner word from the act of understanding is an act from act procession that starts in the agent and that remains in the agent. And so Aquinas says "This this is a kind of natural analog for what it would mean for there to be procession in a perfectly simple God. And from there, he'll go on to unfold how these two processions, the procession of the sun and the procession of the spirit, um, can be conceived in terms of relations and then in terms of persons and and ultimately missions. And we can talk about the, the sort of broader implications of the psychological analogy for the sort of whole of Thomas's Trinitarian thought another day. But for the purposes of talking about understanding and the inner word, in a more philosophical frame, Lonergan wants to point out that these things have their origin in Thomas, really in his Trinitarian analogy that we get in the first article of question 27 of the Prima Parts.
0: And so um, one of the things you see in the Verbum articles is Lonergan claiming that these categories of the act of understanding and of the verbum mentis, the inner word that proceeds from it, um, are not the fruit of metaphysical speculation, um, but are the fruit of an empirical inquiry that he thinks both Aristotle and Thomas must have undertaken. They don't thematize it in empirical or phenomenological terms, um, in part because of the ideal of science that they're working with. That's all other discussion. Um, but, But Lonergan really takes a stand that the, these terms are derived from an inquiry into uh, data, into to, to an experienced given. And so in, in insight, you have this claim that uh, understanding is experienced. And so you can have both the data of sense, but also the data of consciousness, the givenness to consciousness of the acts that constitute it. Um, and so he's got these lovely passages, uh, and I think I quote one of them in my, in my article, Insight is a Body Feeling, uh, that basically says like, look, just because the data of consciousness is, is hard to, uh, it takes some practice to attend to, and it's even harder to objectify and to catalog and organize, um, doesn't make the excuses that sociologists and psychologists come up with to avoid the data of consciousness, um, thereby anything less than obscurantism. Uh, that these data really are given. And like all uh, experiential data, they raise questions and those questions call out for answers that explain them. Uh, and the, the scientific canon of complete explanation demands that you explain these data uh, no less than you explain the data of sense. Um, and on a, on a previous episode where we talked about the fact-value distinction, we went into what Lonergan's, I, I sort of briefly rattled off Lonergan's theory, his sort of model for uh, what the, the formally dynamic structure of cognitional uh, experience is, right? Is, is sort of theoretical explanation of what's going on structurally when you uh, understand and come to know. But today I want to talk about understanding not as, ex, as explained, not understanding, not as understood, but understanding as experience. How can we indicate, how can we specify the mode of self presence? the the way of being conscious, the 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 felt givenness of understanding. So, if we want to follow in Aristotle and and particularly in Thomas's footsteps, uh, to to make an inquiry into the data, sort of check and verify if their theory is is reliable or not, and especially if this is unto uh, a trinitarian, some kind of trinitarian insight, right? If we want to make sure that our our analogate is um, is you know. Real, uh, if if it's really something that we do in fact know and so can analogize from, then it's going to be important that we be able to um, to indicate what kind of experience we're talking about and which data we're appealing to by our theory of understanding. Um, but one of the interesting things here is that Lonergan makes this a little bit by the way odd claim where he says we tend to. Uh, reflexively think of words, of, of language, as referring to objects. And Lonergan says, that's not quite right for Thomas. Thomas thinks that words don't primarily mean things, but they mean inner words. Um, that, that they have words, uh, vox, right, uh, language, primarily has its reference to the content of acts of understanding, to objects of thought. Um. And, his, and Thomas's account of understanding, as having uh, a mentis that proceeds from an active intelligere, suggests that understanding involves integrally meaning. Which means that not only is understanding experienced, but also meaning is experienced. All right. So that's our sort of Thomistic, Lonerganian, Aristotelian backdrop here. Yeah, go ahead. Robin. I was saying
1: one one further thing that helped me understand Lonergan's this part of Lonergan's project when I was coming to it, um, because I come from a scientific background, is understanding that for Lonergan, like this whole discussion isn't just it's it's just it's not esoteric. It's not like oh, how do you know? Um, I have some interest in like psychological things or something, but for him, this is all part of a method. So in the same way that you have the scientific method, right? Which is a method of knowing, but constrained by a whole number of rules, right? But you, you form a hypothesis, you form a way of testing that hypothesis, you run your tests, you look at your data, you reevaluate your hypothesis and so on and so forth. What Lonergan is doing here with, with all of this is a similar type of methodology, except it's a methodology um, to understand what it is to understand. So it's a much more broadly scientific, not in terms of the natural sciences, but in terms of you know scientia as knowledge. It's it's a methodology for understanding how we understand, for knowing what knowing is, or what it is to be a knower.
0: Um, Yeah, and I don't I don't know exactly the the genealogy of how this happened, but there there is a certain um, sort of uh, intro to systematic theology seminar account of Lonergan, where Lonergan is classed among the transcendental Thomists. And so Lonergan is, in, in some respect, some, some, some kind of um, a priorist Kantian. And, and precisely what I'm arguing against in the article, and, and so too here, is an account of Lonergan as uh, engaging in, in sort of the a priori conditions of cognition or something. Um, Lonergan's method is, is quite explicitly uh, a posteriori. It's, it's about attending to your experience and inquiring into your experience. And so it's definitionally not an a priorist project. Um, it's an empirical project. And this is uh, overlooked for a number of reasons, um, some of which I understand and some of which I don't. Um, but that's sort of part of the background thing in terms of how Lonergan is read. Um, that's important to emphasize that this is right. This is an empirical method uh, for investigating what understanding
2: is.
1: Well, I mean, I think it- if, if you see Thomas as beginning in metaphysics, not in experience, and you see Aristotle as beginning in metaphysics and not in experience, you're clearly also going to see Lonergan as beginning in metaphysics and not experience, right? I mean, it's, it's a it's a genealog, it's, it's an error that you can trace back quite easily, I think.
0: Um, okay, so, I, so I, I'm learning all this stuff. And at the same time, my adv- then my advisor, now I'm one of my directors, uh, Robert Doran. Had mentioned to me uh, the work of a psychologist and also a quite capable philosopher named Eugene Genlin. And uh, Genlin had a, a kind of a brief pop psychology hit in his book Focusing, which people sometimes have heard of, um, which is in some ways a, a precursor to the mindfulness uh, psychology movement at the moment. But but he wrote a, a philosophical text called um, Experiencing and the Creation of Meaning which uh, you really should go pick up. It's a pretty remarkable book. But when he, when he moves into, once he gets sort of done with his introductory throat clearing and he moves into the meat of what his argument is, Jenlyn, oh, Robin's got a copy of it right in front of her. Terrific. Um, it's, um, he, he makes this claim, short little sentence. He says, uh, the problem is meaning is experienced. And that caught my attention. Um, because that sounds like somebody I knew, uh, and and now what does Jenlin mean by that, though? So so Jenlin talks about felt experience, and what he means by felt experience is a kind of global awareness that one has uh, in not not just of one's body, but in one's body, of the the total givenness, the total awareness. Um, that exists in an undifferentiated way at every moment that you're conscious. So you're riding in your car right now or you're taking your dog for a walk or you're doing dishes and you are having a felt experience. Now, the imp- an important thing that uh, Jenlin distinguishes is he says, when I'm talking about felt experience, I'm not talking about this or that uh, specific feeling, right? Um, not, uh, the sort of, uh, not the sort of, Not the sort of how you're feeling right sad or grumpy or tired or whatever um but sort of just the givenness of that you're feeling that you are that you are present to yourself and the presence to yourself has a quality and the quality is given in uh to borrow the language of Merleau-Ponty sort of in the phenomenological body um it's given in your your full fully extended uh embodied consciousness of yourself um, But the thing about felt experience is that it's global and undifferentiated. And so if you want to pick out some aspect of how you're feeling at any moment, um, you are going to need to use a symbol to specify some either element or moment of your felt experience, of this globalized, I call it sort of body feeling. And... Um, and it can be really simple. I mean, it can be as simple as uh, this feeling, right? Just, this, just the, that kind of ostensive uh, symbol, this, that picks it out from the other feelings that you've had, this feeling. And, that, and by picking out this feeling, you can now ask about this feeling, right? You've, you've specified some element of, of your given experience, of your body feeling. And you can say, what is this feeling that I'm having? I uh, I am personally always the last one to the party when it comes to my own affectivity. Um, I'll go to I'll go to my wife and I'll say, you know, I'm just feeling kind of down and depressed. And she'll go, you mean for the last three days? Uh, And I'm like, oh yeah, I guess. Boy, upon reflection, yeah, I guess I've been kind of down the last few days. And she's like, yeah, I know. Um, But being able to just pick out that feeling down, right? To have a symbol uh, allows it to become. Objectified, not in the pejorative sense, but just in in the um, practical sense. It lets me select it as a specified, as a distinct object of my consciousness. And so then I can inquire about it. So, one of the the really basic arguments that I make in the Haythrop Journal article is that the act of understanding is given. The experience of going from not understanding to understanding is given in this global, undifferentiated felt experience of one's body. And so like all other uh, data of consciousness, it is a body feeling. And so beginning the work of doing interiority analysis or cognitional inquiry or whatever you want to call it, is a matter of specifying within the global givenness of your embodied consciousness those felt experiences that pertain to coming to understand And then having a a symbolic structure and a a theoretical apparatus to be able to inquire about it and explain it. Um, But if it really is going to be an a posteriori, if it's going to be an empirical enterprise, it has to begin in the symbolic act of selecting, uh, selecting the distinct felt experience. Um, And then it becomes, for Genlin, once you've used a symbol to select it out, it becomes a felt meaning. Um, Or we might just say the, the the experience becomes. Meaningful. Now, it may not be very in a very specific way, and not be in a particularly distinct way yet. But that's a kind of ongoing process of symbolization and resymbolization for Genlin. This, for example, is how he thinks of the therapeutic process. That one goes to a a psychologist and sits in the chair across from him or her, and they listen to you symbolize and resymbolize this feeling you're having or experiences that you've had, and then they try to appreciate the quality of that experience and symbolize it back to you in a way that shows that they've attuned to it, experienced it as well. And through the back and forth of symbolization uh, and re-symbolization, because the symbols themselves are also objects of experience, the quality of the experience can change. And so you can make Genlin Think's therapeutic process through this back and forth of having, Lonergan would say sort of insights into your experience, and those insights become sort of tied to the experience, and so too then the symbols that express them. Okay, so that's Genlin, broadly speaking.
1: Can I ask a clarifying question here? Yeah, great. Because um, in the article that you wrote, you talk about Genlin wants to be very clear that like, the f- like felt experience is not the same as feelings about the situation. Right. What you seem to be describing in this therapeutic process or whatever as your example is specifically people's feelings about those situations.
0: Right, so that's... Um You have a sort of genus-species relationship there, right? So the felt experience is the global and differentiated givenness of your embodied self-consciousness, right? Or just consciousness, if if self is too broad a term. Um, So then the therapeutic process attends specifically to those elements of felt experience that pertain to what we would call, in a sort of more proper sense, affectivity. I mean, it doesn't have to; it can be. I mean, you can do CBT and stuff and do that kind of thing. But Jenlin's really focused on. Selecting and picking out the affective element. Um, so I don't think, I think he would say, um, you know, if, if part of your felt experience is cognitive dissonance, then symbolizing the felt, the felt experience of that cognitive dissonance and transforming it in, into something meaningful, a felt meaning, and symbolizing and re-symbolizing it until you can have some resolution or some relief of the dissonance. Well, then that would be a perfectly appropriate therapeutic enterprise as well. Um, but most but but often people go to therapy because um their feelings are, are giving them trouble. Um, that something doesn't feel right. Um but but yeah, so it's it's really is kind of uh concentric circles that that feelings in the affective sense are given at the site of this phenomenological body of of felt experience, um of of a kind of uh global undifferentiated quality of being conscious in one's body. Is that clarifying enough?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that makes okay.
0: sense. Um all right, so then how do these things how did I bring these things together? The that basic claim that insight is a body feeling, that the givenness of the data of consciousness is given in this way that Jenlin describes, is I think helpful for for directing people to the Lonergan's project that's an empirical project, but it doesn't carry very far. So the thing I've been thinking about and developing since is really thinking about um, the difference between the act of understanding, right? That synchronic movement from not understanding to understanding, going from potency to act in metaphysical terms, um, as a kind of synchronic mm, flash that that might come with feelings, right? Uh, You might be so excited uh, about having had the idea finally after being baffled, that, for example, you uh, leap naked from your bath and run down the hall, um, or some less embarrassing form of uh, joyful expression. But in Thomas's construal, the what of your understanding, right? The content of the act isn't, uh, you, you don't sort of have it in a synchronic way, right? Because in metaphysical terms, the act of understanding apprehends the intelligibility that it grasps immediately. There's no, there, it, it, The form in the thing is the form in your mind. and Because form is not material, there's no, there's no sort of spatial problem of how did I get it from out there to in here? Because um, immaterial things don't have to worry about being in spatial places. They don't have to worry about bilocating. Um, but the thing about an immediate apprehension is you can't do anything with it. It's indistinct. Right, you've just had the flash, and then if you've ever had that uh, experience in class or something, or reading a book, and you go, "Oh," and someone recognizes that you've had an act of understanding, you've had an insight, and they lean over and they go, "What? What did you get?" And then you go, um, uh, "Hang on, right?" Because because having had the act of understanding, going from not understanding to understanding, is an immediate apprehension, and. We're not the kind of thing that can do very much with just the global givenness of an immediate apprehension. We need to be able to engage in a discursive process, which is what it would be to explain what you've understood to someone else, right? To engage in the diachronic process of articulating, of formulating and expressing what was apprehended in your active understanding. And so... This is, in a way, the role that the verba mentis, that the inner word, is to play. That it proceeds from the act, and that proceeding in us is a diachronic process. It unfolds over time. You have it, it perdures, it's with you. Um, Lonergan has the somewhat cryptic language in um, insight of it sort of falling into the habitual texture of your knowing, um, which I, I found utterly unhelpful for a long time. Um, but it seems to me that that if insight in general, if understanding in general is given as a body feeling, as a felt experience, then both the synchronic act of intelligibility, of coming to understand, but also the diachronic procession of the verb mentis from the act, that both of these would be given in this way as a felt experience. And in particular, I think it's helpful to think of the verb mentis as just such a felt meaning, as a, as a, um, uh, an experience of one's consciousness that bears an intelligible content and that's given at the site of your phenomenological body. Um, and one of the ways in which we, we can sort of indicate what this is like is have you ever forgotten someone's name in conversation, right? You're telling a story. Uh, I did it earlier with Caravaggio. I was talking about Kairoscuro or something. Um, and I couldn't think of his name. And the, and the funny thing that happens in those conversations is maybe your, your interlocutor is uh, trying to be helpful, so they rattle off some names. Um, you know, you've know, you forgotten someone's name, and they go, is it Susan? Is it Wendy? And as they rattle off the names, for some reason, you know that they're wrong. Right? No, it's not, it's not Wendy. And then they say, is it Michelle? And you know that Michelle is right. Well, how? How do you know that that word signifies correctly while the other two didn't? and my hypothesis is that you possess uh, the the understanding of the person you're talking about as an verbamentis, as an inner word uh, as a as a, as a felt meaning as a meaning you feel in your body and when the appropriate symbol is brought forward michelle you recognize it you recognize that that's the that's the verbal symbol that goes with this felt meaning um and so what is what is that word mean? It means the verbamentis. It means the inner word as experienced, as given. And it's able to become distinct and apprehended and remembered insofar uh, as you're able to both specify it and also uh, link it up with, uh, with that experience, the experience with the, with the outer word, with the symbol. Um, and what this does for us, uh, and I say for us because you know, Thomas has those long passages where he distinguishes uh, human intelligence The human intellect from angelic intellects, for example, but in us it allows the synchronic immediate apprehension of intelligibility and an active insight to become a part of a diachronic process of reasoning, and so our our insights, our understandings can accumulate over time. In other words, we can learn, and so what Jenlin sees happening in the therapeutic process um, can happen more broadly in a cognitive setting where through um, the accumulation of symbols and the felt meanings that they, uh, that they mean, we can come to develop uh, an accumulating uh, a, a progressive understanding of our world, of ourselves, of other people, of ideas. Um, but if what we're interested in is, the, is understanding itself, it means that to be attentive to the fine grained differences in different kinds of understanding, and that's a lot of what insight is about. Insight is about specifying different kinds of understanding, um, and and really and doing metaphysics as corresponding to dif- the differentiation of kinds of intelligence. Well, where are we going to go find the data to do that inquiry in an a posteriori empirical way? Um, we're going to find it in our experience, our felt experience of ourselves. As consciously embodied in the givenness of our bodies to ourselves, um, and I think this also has some interesting implications for like um, the locatedness of those bodies, um, the desires and abilities, and um, social meaningfulness of those bodies are going to, to shade and uh, qualify and diversify uh, the kinds of understanding that are uh, waiting to be cataloged and understood and theorized about by philosophers and theologians and social theorists and sociologists. Um, but there has to be a kind of, there has to be a kind of phenomenological attentiveness to that um, and specifically as given an experience and given as an experience of one's body. Um, all right, that was long, um, but that's sort of the whole picture. That's the way I, take, I feel like I, I, I'm able to take Lonergan's Thomas and Lonergan's development of Thomas and Jenlin's uh, sort of phenomenology of, of, of experiencing and meaning and bring them together to suggest a way in which Thomas's metaphysical account um, is really accessible to, to an empirical both verification and furthering uh, of inquiry.
2: So, um, I, I, I have sort of hunch on here that is, um, but that comes full circle back to the Trinitarian context um, that, I, that I think is at least um, implicit in, in Lonergan's account in Verbum uh, and in some of Bob Doran's theology. But I, I want to I really drive the point home in an explicit way, which is to say that um, when you ask the question, what is the natural analogous in the psychological analogy, once once you make this shift, it's no longer sufficient simply to say the preceding inner word. Because, uh, you know, you could sit down with somebody and teach them the basic beats of Thomas's reasoning in question 27, as I tried to do at the beginning of this episode. And they could, in theory, just sort of assent to the coherence of what you've just presented to them. Yeah. They could see the parts, they could see the, the relationships that are being indicated between those parts, and sort of see the course the, the analogical correspondence between that, that supposedly natural structure and this eternal, infinite, divine one. But what you don't have in that purely metaphysical psychology is any actual knowledge of the natural analogate itself. Now Lonergan's uh, hunch and his hypothesis in Verbum is that, well, the only conceivable explanation for why both Aristotle and Aquinas were able to come to these insights about cognitional process is that they were engaged in some real self interrogation of their own acts and operations that they learned to pay attention to what in what they were doing when they were engaged in an inquiry but the expression of what they found there was worked out in terms of a metaphysical faculty psychology um that uh doesn't require self interrogation in order to affirm uh as Lonergan says elsewhere, right? The 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 powers and potencies are not given in consciousness, right? They're they're abstractions that that you work your way back to through an Aristotelian process, um, but they aren't themselves given in consciousness. Yeah, what are What's given in consciousness? Acts, right? So uh, so there's 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 Lonergan's step forward by saying Aquinas' trinitarian theology, his account of, of the inner word. Almost has to be the result of his own self interrogation, even if he lacked the, uh, the sort of technique and symbolization to uh, express that self interrogation and so defaulted back to a metaphysic. But I think there's a further step there. Um, one, I, I'm like sufficiently convinced that, that Lonergan's hypothesis about Aristotle and Aquinas is right. But the further point then is that um, that the natural analogy, the natural analogate is not just the preceding inner word as a doctrine or the preceding inner word as an element of a, of, a metaphys- of a metaphysical or even a cognitional structure, but it's that element as it proceeds in you, as you yourself objectify it and so interrogate it and eventually come to know it. Uh, it's, it's only your own process of self-interrogation and affirmation of your own experience of the preceding inner word that you come to possess in knowledge the natural analogate for the divine processions. Um, so simply, simply sort of seeing the coherence of, of the inner word within a metaphysical psychology is like, good. But it's not, not in and of itself yet what it needs to be in order to be a natural analogy. You have to possess knowledge of that analogate, and that knowledge is a knowledge of a process, a diachronic process that you yourself are engaged in. Mm-hmm. So until you've done the work of self interrogation, uh, until you've done the work of of the kind of phenomenal, phenomenological, empirical analysis of understanding and of conceptualization. Um, simply assenting to the coherence of the met, of the metaphysical psychology is not yet to know the natural analogy
1: right so unlike the scientific method which is entirely premised on external verification this is a methodology that's like completely predicated on internal verification right and it can but only the, be subjectively
2: yes verified. but but the but the but the thing that's doing the work there are the contents the, the data that are being interrogated? So so this is what this is what distinguishes sort of scientific method as we were all taught it in school from other kinds of method. It's not that you're doing different kinds of acts when you're engaged in in work in the lab than you're doing uh, in therapy or that you're doing when you're framing. Uh, the acts are specified to a distinct controlled class of data. Right. Right. And that's what sort of marks out the method as the scientific method because it's the process, the, the sort of unified process of understanding as specified to the kinds of data scientists select for their investigations. So here we're just, we're selecting a different set of data.
0: Which is, uh, which is sort of why I wrote the article, right? Because I, I thought it was really necessary to try and say in a fulsome way, um, and, and, and in an ostensive way, right? Where are we finding this data? Right. Um, and, and it didn't seem to me that just saying, well, in consciousness, um, well, consciousness is such a wildly controverted term. Um, it seemed to me that more uh, indicative, descriptive language um, and a really kind of controlled set of categories was going to be needed uh, to help indicate to people, yeah, 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 but like, what are we talking about? What, what, uh, what's it like? To attend to the data of consciousness, um, and that you know, I, I think that's a a much needed a much needed thing, particularly in a setting where you know any language of consciousness and this kind of thing is taken to be a kind of um, you know Cartesian or Kantian speculation uh, rather okay. than
2: a, a really genuinely empirical form of inquiry. Um, so, so I, I I sort of see this as having a twofold advantage. One, it um, as you say, it sort of enri- it enriches the analysis that you get in, in Aquinas and, and even from what you get in Lonergan by uh, clarifying what is empirical in the data of consciousness as empirical. Right. Um, and then it has, so that's, that's the sort of philosophical advantage, right? Because if you, can, if you can really have objective clarity about the class of data and the kinds of data you're interrogating, your, the, the, your sort of methodical uh, correspondence, your methodical kind of um, acquiescence to those data is going to be better, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the better you, you control the data, the better your operations are going to be. So there's, there's that philosophical advantage. But then it, I think it has a, a further theological consequences in that it shows that the psychological analogy is not just this kind of... Um, western curiosity that uh sort of has its origins in uh the the um internalized confusion of saint augustine and and then the kind of metaphysical rigor of aquinas um but but it it's there's something perennially true about it that shifts in philosophical idioms actually make clearer and clearer. So the shift from uh, a sort of purely metaphysical psychology to an intentionality analysis clarifies the acts with 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 much more rigor, uh, and the shift from uh, that 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 account of cognition to to Jenlin's account is that uh, uh, it gives you not just the acts but the data upon which the you're you're doing the acting, and so you 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 uh, you're not just Pulling the analogy from one philosophical idiom to another, you're enriching the the content and meaning of the analogy when you do it, and so it kind of uh, uh, allows for um, for Trinitarian theology, I think, to really engage with more contemporary uh, empirical phenomenological philosophy um, in in a way that's that's going to actually bear fruit for very traditional kinds of Trinitarian theology.
0: And I, and I think you can bring it into uh, Christology and Soteriology too. So one, of the th- so one of the things I'm working on, I'm going to probably co-author an uh, art- article or a couple of articles with Eric Mabry on this, um, but to talk about Christ's possession of the beatific vision as being um, the synchronic possession of, a, of an act
2: of understanding,
0: um, but one that his human body requires a diachronic process to make sense of
2: symbolize yeah, that, that's that sounds really
0: promising um so that so that, that that empirically given distinction between the synchronic act and the diachronic possession of the inner word um would let you solve some of the conundrums about christ's beatific knowing um and the other one too is that uh, somewhat by analogy uh to that that you could also um give an account of glorified bodies um mm. that uh that in the resurrection human beings uh, though our, though our, our, our intellects may be given uh, the beatific vision, we need bodies that are proportionate to being able to uh, have in a distinct way, um, in, a, in, in, in a meaningful way, uh, that communication of the divine nature. And so in the resurrection, we receive glorified bodies that are sort of uh, more up to the task than our present bodies for the possession of God's communication of God's nature to us. Sure um anyway you know those are I'm, those are just hy- hypotheses at the moment that i want to develop but it seems like uh you can carry this and anymore. will
2: remain as such till the eschaton but
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah indeed 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 but I, you know i would like them to be published articles at some point in the interim uh yeah so anyway that's uh that's that that's my that's my sort of um insight as a body feeling spiel
2: i um, keep waiting for robin to sort of um quizzically look up and then ask a question that pulls the rug out from everything that just happened for the last 45 <laughs> minutes as she tends to do. True enough.
1: Well, in this case, my, um, it might just be predicated on a complete lack of understanding on my part, but I doubt that the whole discussion of like felt meaning with Jen Lin, right? Like, and you even use these terms is about a movement. Like there, there's constant movement from potency to act. Right. Mm-hmm. But when Aquinas originally used this whole idea of the inner word and this whole like psychological analogy, it was to ex- like, it was to reconcile how you can have procession in a God who has no potency, right. but is pure act. So it strikes me that don't, you have a, a bit of a problem moving from one to the other in a Trinitarian sense, because um, this psych, this particular psychological kind of, or, but the natural Form that we're basing this on is full of potency. Um, so I just don't know how you. I just want to know. I just want to know how you get around that when yeah. So so it, so in, it
0: involves. Um, yeah. So so it involves distinguishing um, the movement from from not understanding to understanding is from potency to act, and the movement from uh, the undifferentiated global givenness of a felt meaning to it being distinguished through symbolization is a movement from potency to act. But the movement from the act of understanding, which is synchronic, but also given in the global felt experience of your consciousness, to the diachronic possession of the content of that act in uh, in the felt experience of the inner word, of the verbum mentis, that movement is A, specifically the, ana- the analogate for the Trinitarian possessions, and B, that is act from act. That is actually having the... Act of understanding, and then possessing in a diachronic way a, a a process, right? The procession of the possession of the meaningfulness in a in a body feeling uh, from it. So it's act insight from or excuse me, act the possession of the felt meaning uh, from act the act of understanding.
1: But in humans, doesn't that possession of the felt meaning involve a whole series of acts whereby you like question, discuss?
0: Um, so no, whatever the,
1: we all have potency.
0: So that would be the that would be the movement from the possession, the the sort of possession, having the feeling that's meaningful, to its symbolization and specification. That would be potency to act. Okay, uh, albeit in a different respect, but still potency to act. Um, but the movement from the from the act of understanding to the procession of the inner word as given in one's felt experience. That is act from
1: act. Right. Okay.
0: Because um, you because you've had the understanding in the synchronic sort of flash. Um, and proceeding from it, right? This is why di- this, this synchronic diachronic distinction is so important. From the synchronic switch from not understanding to understanding, there proceeds the felt experience of the inner word of the meaningfulness of what was understood, of the content of the substance of what was understood.
2: I mean, even you know, in in question twenty seven, you know, Aquinas will say that that it is by virtue of the act of understanding that the inner word proceeds. So right. it's it's because there is this act, there is this further act. That's why it's a, a procession. Um so it's it's there's 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 still some causal linkage there, but it's a it's a causal linkage between acts, not but not between potency and act.
1: Yeah. I think that makes sense.
2: Yay. Uh, great.
0: Well we should do treasures old and new Um, Ryan, you're up this week.
2: Sure. Uh, so, uh, I have a treasure old and a treasure new, one of which I've read and one of which I haven't. Um, the treasure old is the one I've read, which is, uh, social Catholicism in Europe from the onset of industrialization to the first world war by Paul Meissner who's uh, a uh, professor emeritus at Marquette. Uh, so, so someone John and I have have uh, bumped shoulders with. And uh, we, we actually read Blondel with him a couple of years ago. Um, but it is it is a, a really, really great uh, history of the emergence of social Catholicism. Uh, I mean, so many of us, um, particularly in North America, I think we we sort of think of social Catholicism as that thing that started with Rerum Novarum um, as if, as if it sort of came out of nowhere. Um, but uh, what, what Meissner does is he traces all of the lines of historical development of civilizational development, theological development um, that, that have their roots in all these different corners of Europe that all kind of come together uh, in the writing of Rerum Novarum and, and the sort of subsequent emergence of, of uh you know the sort of Catholic social thought. Um he's he's written a follow-up book to to this that that brings us through the 20th century. But but I I I especially recommend the first volume because it it covers so much ground that so many of us don't ever learn about. Uh, you know, from the emergence of the St. Vincent de Paul Society, uh you just all of these different figures that you may have heard names thrown out here or there, but have no idea the kind of um, story of how, how all of this comes together. So uh, Social Catholicism in Europe is Meister's book. And, and The Treasure New, I have not read, but I have heard uh, some of it read. Um, so it's a, a hugely ambitious, new uh, epic poem. Um, by uh, Mihail O'Shiel uh, called The Five Quintets. And uh, it is a uh, uh, sort of one full poem written over the course of 300 pages, uh, structured as, as five distinct uh, quintets, each keyed to a sort of different element of Western intellectual history. So there's one on economics, one on politics, one on natural science, and then one on sort of philosophy and theology as a a sort of singular thing. Uh, It's sort of explicitly written sort of in conversation with Charles Taylor's secular age, but expressed uh, as poetry. And so each, each, uh, each one of the quintets is written with a different style of poetry. Uh, and covering a different uh, sort of element of intellectual history, uh, there is a great interview uh, with O'Shiel that was done on the first episode of the newly launched Commonweal podcast, uh, and he gives a reading of uh, of a section of the poem. Uh, it's it's brand new out this year from Baylor University Press. Uh, I think he's he's going out on the on a poetry reading tour to promote the book. Um, so it's it's one I plan on putting at the top of my uh, my uh, sort of list wish list for Santa. Uh, so we'll we'll see what he brings.
0: Right on. Um, thanks, Ryan. All right. Well, that's our episode this week. Uh, as always, you can find us on Twitter at SystematicPod. You can shoot us an email if you want, systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on iTunes if you get a chance. If you want to rate review. Give us the star thing. Um, tell a friend. Post us on Facebook. Um, snap us to someone. I'm just old enough that I, I speak about Snapchat like I'm a thousand. Um, in any case, uh, our music, as always, is track 14 at, off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. Um, I think... I think that's it. So thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Robin. Brian, we missed you. And remember, everybody be reasonable.